Welcome to episode five of the Football Shirt Pod, and today we're joined by an actual, real-life football shirt designer, Rob Warner, the man responsible for a World Cup-winning jersey. In the space of three months or four months, I've gone from graduating and you know, just living on super noodles and saying Sainsbury's own brand bread, to then travelling out to, to go and watch Lazio. You uh, have got one of the jobs that I think anyone who likes football but wasn't able to be a footballer, you've got one of the, the sort of second best jobs. So you had one of the second best jobs as a football shirt designer. How do you even go about becoming a football shirt designer? What was the, what was the story that led to you designing football shirts for a living? It was partly luck, I guess, but I also think that to a certain extent, you know, if, you, if you aim for something or want something, then sometimes you, you, know, you put yourself in a position to find that luck. And it was only once I'd kind of almost graduated university that I realised how much I used to design stuff when I was a kid. Whereas for me back then, it was just something that I did was drawing pictures. So um, I had a subscription to Voy of the Rovers when I was little. Um, and I, when I finished reading it, I'd often get Tipex out and, and Tipex over the kits and then really? get, yeah, and then get, draw, <laughs> get drawing over the top of them. That's uh, and then as I got a little bit older and became a teenager, I then started tipexing out the words and writing my own very crude storylines, <laughs> um, which was fine until I, I got busted because I'd started selling them at school. It was like a football-themed no version way. of Viz, really. Yeah. <laughs> Superb. Which, Have you uh, still got any? No, I haven't. Uh, I think, I think, from memory, I think my mom found them, which you know put the, put the kibosh on that yeah. little business venture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I did that and then... Um, it was. I was in sixth form at school, and I went to a grammar school, so it wasn't really the done thing that you went off into kind of creative roles. It was usually yeah, you know, you'd go and study accountancy or pharmacy or whatever. And, and I I was really taken by design, but also with uh, with physiotherapy and, and sports related sciences because I've had a, a bad sporting injury as a teenager. Okay, and so um, I decided to to pursue design getting into into my A-levels. I thought, well, well, I'll take that as one of my options. Um, and then we had a guy from Bernardo's came in wanting us to sell pin badges door-to-door and showed us this video clip of kids suffering and said, you know, go and sell the pin badges and you can you can raise £10. And it just really struck me. And I was like, I want to do more than that. So I don't quite know why, but I ended up deciding I'd put on a catwalk show um, so, I mean, I guess looking back, I was probably a prototype in between, uh, <laughs> drawing, on, drawing on comics and putting yeah. on unwanted catwalk shows. Um, but I got introduced to a guy who'd got a local brand in Birmingham and he sorted me out some clothes for the show. And then I started doing a little bit of work with him on the weekends and ended up kind of falling into it, thinking, well, I, I really like this. Um, looked at it as a career, studied fashion in Manchester. Um, as a 17-year-old, the decision was basically fashion so I could meet girls in Manchester to all the ISIS. And then when I graduated, yeah, just got the got the opportunity to go and work for Puma, uh, based originally down in Surrey. And then in my first week, I went over to Germany to meet the, the main design team. And there was a guy there who was designing football kits. So he was working on Lazio and Cameroon when I was there. Oh, what, just blew what, me away. The, the Cameroon kit? 
Yeah, so he worked, he was working on the sleeveless one. Oh wow! Um, yeah, which was amazing. So just blew me away to see that. What, what you can do this for a job, and they give you money for it. <laughs> it's never really occurred to me where they come from. I guess, or it yeah. did, but not. I don't know. I guess I, I never thought I'd be that closely in contact with it. Yeah. And then went back to the UK at the end of the week, and the following week, the product director called me into his office and said, "Well." The, the guy that's out there is looking to move back to the UK and you made a good impression out there. Would you be up for moving out to Germany and taking over his role? Wait, hang on a minute. So how long had you been with Puma by this point? A week. Oh, my. And how old were you? <laughs> uh, 22. So I'd graduated. Oh. Yeah, I'd, I'd graduated. Um, had my graduation ceremony, I think, on the Thursday. Started on the Monday. Flew out to Germany on the Tuesday and back on the Friday and then got offered a job in Germany thought, on the Monday. I thought there was going to be this long story of how you started making teas and coffees for people and you know, you'd know you worked your way up from the months or years or whatever and suddenly you get this opportunity, but it was a week. Pretty much, yeah. That is, that is unbelievable. I mean, I've done, I've done a year's work experience whilst I was a student as well, yeah. um, which was at that time it was a, a compulsory part of the course. Yeah. So I went and, uh, ironically, I was supposed to go and work for Umbro, um, and they got bought out, so they cancelled my workplace oh, the last right. minute, and ended up going to work for Carrymore, who at the time was still a privately owned company rather than part of the Sports Direct Empire. Yeah. Um, and with it being such a small company, I just took on quite a lot of responsibility, and so went into my interviews with Puma with experience of. Yeah product line planning and working with manufacturers and you know kind of gave me a pretty good head start but then yeah in terms of that opportunity coming up I mean there was at that time there was one football designer at Puma I mean the company itself we had in the German office I think we had eight clothing designers and that was it so it's a really small That's team incredible. so, so, one, so one designer designing responsible for how many kits well it was it was still quite small back then so this was 2001 yeah. so the he would have been working on at that time probably I think there was only four or five national teams that were being done there so that would have been I think Poland Czech Republic Cameroon maybe Morocco um, possibly Switzerland and then on the club teams Monaco Lazio Augsburg uh, Sturm Graz in Austria Boa Vista yeah. Boa Vista and Sturm Graz were always really difficult because they've got black and white checkerboard shirts yeah, um, yeah. So they were they were always like the hardest ones to do, <laughs> um, and that, that was about it. So it was, I mean, it was still a big old workload, mm. um, and some big then, clubs as well. I mean, Lazio has yeah. great Puma kits, didn't they? Oh, totally. I mean, especially at that time, you know, yeah. They, where that was kind of the Crespo Veron Nesta yeah. era. Um, we actually had a, an interesting incident with uh, with Crespo, so. It was, it was after I'd started, and I, I was designing the Lazio kits for the first time. Super excited about it, because it wasn't that long after, really, you know, Gazza had been out there and yeah. whatever else. And so, dead excited working on Lazio. And we would always design the kits with a real player name and number on the back, just yeah. to showcase how that would look. Um, and with Crespo being the star player, we had Crespo 9, I think, on the back. Um, and it was sent across to the, the Puma team in Italy who were going to go down to Rome and present it. And we sent it, I think, on the Friday, uh, ready to arrive. We may even have sent it to go to the Stadio Olimpico, so we'd be there waiting for them to, to be able to present because we, we were really close to the deadline. Um, 
And anyway, that night, um, Lazio announced that I think they'd sold Crespo and Nesta. Huge <laughs> demonstrations like went off in Rome. I thought you, thought you wouldn't believe and there was huge demonstrations outside the stadium and proper torches and pitchforks job wow um, so I had to go back in on the Saturday morning into the office and uh, redo all the work oh no um, way with, with changing the name and number on the back of it and putting Yap Stam on the back of it yeah because uh, he was a Puma athlete so we'd have had a bit of a head yeah. if he was leaving wow. <laughs> but, that's amazing so what's, yeah. the, what's the process how do you even so you're, you're there you you're, work for Puma for a week you're suddenly designing their shirts the Lazio shirts a good example as you say it was a really strong team did they win the Scudetto in 2001 was that the the famous weird final day with the rain and I'm not sure actually quite possibly anyway they're a big big massive European club huge history as you say very familiar to people in this country because of Gaza and everything else and they were a good side when you used to have football Italia and how where do you even start with a club like Lazio what do you do? Do you do you go to Rome? Do you read everything you can about the club? Do you, how, yeah. What's the process? All of that. So, I mean, luckily, my my first ever business trip working for Puma International was go to Rome for three or four days and go and sit in the posh seats at, at Lazio against whoever they were playing. I forget now. Maybe yeah. Fiorentina, I think. It was just crackers. You know, yeah. in the space of three months or four months, I've gone from graduating and you know, just living on super noodles and <laughs> saying Sainsbury's own brand bread to then, well, yeah, travelling out to, to go and watch Lazio. Uh, and so that that's the start is, you know, you want to try and understand as much about the place as possible, but obviously you can't always get out to every club and every stadium that you're designing for. So there's a lot of desk-based research in terms of well, what kits have they had in the past? Are there any anniversaries coming up? Is there anything particularly happening in the city? Um, you always look for kind of things that would give athletes a performance advantage, mm. um, which was something we did a, a really good job of going into 2006. Yeah. But I think for me, it was always looking to, to bring kind of three things together. One is what's the best thing for the athlete? Another one is, does it have meaning for the club? So whether that is looking into the past or just finding something that's going to have some relevance to the club and then obviously will it appeal to the fans, not just in terms of, you know, a, a lot of fan bases can can want something quite traditional, but you yeah. do very traditional and they're always boring. I'm not, I'm not paying 70 quid for that. Yeah. So it's, it's finding that fine line of how do you respect the look of the club, but also offer something that excites the supporters. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and what was, because obviously not criticism of shirts for the last decade or so, perhaps, but perhaps been sort of, I don't know, up to 2018, probably the 2018 world cup was that was the kind of issue around templates and, um, you know, fans getting frustrated with, Particularly, I think Nike, I think we're fairly guilty of it quite a lot with very similar shirts, just changing colours for different clubs and nations. Was that an issue for you back then? Did you have to, obviously you have to adhere to brand guidelines, but was there any, Was is that something you had to contend with or were you given sort of carte blanche really to, to kind of pursue your artistic, uh, you know, desires? Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit of both. I think quite often if you're coming at it from a performance perspective, 
then you get to a place where there is pretty much one right answer. So yeah. if I think of the World Cup in 2006, we had, I think, 13 of the, the 32 qualifiers, um, something like that. And, and they all had the same shirt, apart from Italy away. They all had the same shirt. Nobody's ever, ever called us out on it. Yeah. Um, because we we went very bespoke with the graphics for every nation um, yeah. intentionally because they were going to have identical shirts. So something we always tried to do was vary around how do we use the colour. So if there's a Czech Republic shirt that's got this red with blue highlights on it, how do we make it a three-colour shirt for the team or change the way the highlights are or can we add a graphic to it? Because one of the one of the things that we would do then, which I would guess is, is still a consideration for a lot of the bigger brands, is um, you derive a lot of money from team sports sales and selling to Sunday league clubs. Yeah. So you want to put things on your highest profile assets that the, the Sunday league teams can then buy a, a slightly spec down version of yeah. to be able to wear. Yeah. Um, and then you start also getting into the complexity of doing different shirts for, for different teams. It, it just becomes really difficult from a manufacturing perspective. And yeah, not, of course. not so much from the brand side, but from the factories as well. Yeah. It's just a, a lot easier. And depending on what you do, I mean, for us, we, with the 2006 shirt, we really had no choice. The technology we were using meant that it had to have a certain set of cut lines we had to use those cut lines, not just in 2006, but we also used them in 2007 and eight as well, but nobody really picked up on that. We changed the necklines and one or two other things. Um, but it just was what it was. We'd invested so much into that technology and those were the parameters. Yeah. Um, and similarly with Nike's seamless ones that they're, they're doing at the moment, having worked with seamless product myself, albeit not for football, to try and change those up and make them radically different for every team would just be a logistical nightmare so yeah. you get a better product but you know the, the, the kind of payoff a little bit is that you, you're likely to have a very similar looking shirt to some of the other teams yeah so you talked about 2006 there um, and obviously a World Cup that was won by Italy in a shirt that you designed what, what, what's, how did that feel and, and what was it like you know when you were, were you, did you sort of become a, a secret Italy fan f- for the tournament well there was no secret about it oh, okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean certainly my German neighbours in my apartment block for the, for the semi-final oh, course, no, yeah. no illusion as to who I was supporting because <laughs> um, yeah it was a funny one because obviously living in Germany during that tournament which was an absolute privilege I mean they did such a yeah, amazing job the weather was incredible every single day it was you know, it doesn't even seem real when I reminisce about it but um, living in Nuremberg England played Trinidad there which I yeah. think was a 3-0 win or 4-0 so yeah. went to that uh, managed to get to the quarter final and saw the England against Portugal um, you know which was obviously a, a disappointment so there was kind of wanting England to win it but once they you know, we're out. Then it was all eyes on Italy for me. Yeah. Um, and what do you and do? What do you do when the world when you with the first first games and they're wearing the shirt that you designed? How does it feel? And are you? Are you? I guess it was two thousand six is pre 
well, pre the explosion of social media, so you couldn't sort of get that insight into what fans were thinking of. But but um, what? How do you? What, what's kind of going through your mind? Are you trying to pick up on the commentators mentioning the shirts or the way the players seem to be reacting to wearing? Or I don't know if you if you could really. Yeah, that, but... well, no, that's 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 the biggest thing, really. Is or, or certainly was at that time was just wanting the players to to feel like it was a good shirt. Yeah, our, our brief from the brand going into that tournament was get players to the ball faster. So. Okay. We had to think about every aspect of that from uh, the design work itself in terms of the silhouette. You know, previously, kind of skin-tight kits had been a bit of a thing up to yeah. 2006, particularly with, with Italy. Yeah. Um, and obviously, if you want to make a human more aerodynamic, then you just put them in something skin-tight that's going to reduce the drag. But we had to take into consideration that the psychology of the athletes that would be wearing the product. So at that time, the, the Cameroon squad looked amazing in anything that we put them in, really. They just had an incredibly uh, athletic group of, of players. Yeah. But then if we'd have put the Czech Republic in skin-tight product with Jan Koller and Thomas <laughs> Rosicki, yeah. you know, psychologically going out on the pitch, any minor advantage that they get <laughs> from that is lost by them feeling perhaps self-conscious about yeah, yeah. You know, being slimmer guys. Um, so we had to factor that in. We tested the aerodynamics in a low-velocity wind tunnel. We stripped all the weight out of fabric. We even uh, reduced the stretch in the player version, so it only stretches around the body and only a small amount. Okay. And then the over the top of the shoulders, there was like a contrast-coloured bow section, which... That was done from a really stretchy knit material, so the players could still move, uh, still move their arms laterally and vertically. But um, if a, if an opposition player was to grab their shirt, there wasn't enough stretch in it that they could hold onto it. Yeah. So if somebody was getting away and the defender pulls the shirt, it's just coming straight out of their hands. There's no way to hold the player back. Yeah. So we thought about every aspect of how that shirt would work. Um, the one thing that we had to, I guess, compromise on was with it being super lightweight and with the weather being so hot was once the players started sweating, the shirts did wet out and on some players they noticeably stuck to the body. Yeah. Um, but the alternative is that you put them in something that's heavier, looser, whatever else, and you, know, you lose that performance advantage. It's interesting you're talking about the, um, the, 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 uh, the particularly the Kappa uh, the warrior warrior fit or whatever you call it the skin tight right. shirts um uh, that just preceded the shirt you're, you're just talking about uh, and it's interesting you're talking about there you're worrying about certain players wearing that fit of shirt because it always stuck me from the manufacturer's point of view that it must be a bit of a headache when you've got to try and design a shirt that the fans can wear as well and also you were talking there about the fact that these are actually marketing tools for you know Sunday league teams as well um and you know, from my own experience, Sunday league teams aren't uh, always the fittest either. Yeah. Um, so, is that? Do you think that one of the reasons that we sort of moved away from that very, very snug fit? Um, well, we 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 would have three fits at Puma. Okay. Um, so usually we would have athlete fit would be consistent um, around the world, and then replica fit would be more for the European teams. 
and then we would have what we called a brick fit, which was the replica shape for Everton, Tottenham, whoever else. If you were to lay a Lazio replica shirt over a Everton replica shirt from the same era, there's a pretty good chance that one would be slightly wider than the other. Okay, okay. Um, I'll let you guess which one would be wider <laughs> than the other. Yeah. Um, but it's, so, so we took that into account. Okay. Um, and, uh, but I think you know you, you kind of have to because it's got to be fit for purpose. Even for for two thousand and six, we did um, the because the shirt had so little stretch in it mm. that we had to make it slightly bigger. And then because of it was so lightweight, we had to use a heavier fabric for the fans because it just wouldn't be fit for purpose. Yeah. And then with some of the other countries that we were working with, so notably Czech Republic, Cameroon, Ghana. Um, one or two others, we actually did a really, really spec down version that was only available locally in those countries um, just because we believed that people shouldn't not be able to wear their team shirt for a, for a World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and just, I read somewhere that, so you're a Villa fan, right? Yeah, yeah. I read there was a story about the goalkeeper shirts with that with the Italy two thousand six shirt. Is that right? That you were uh, you snuck in a, a, a sneaky Villa reference? Yeah, absolutely. And the coaches, <laughs> <laughs> not just the goalkeeper. <laughs> so uh, yeah, he was wearing uh, one of Buffon's jerseys. So he, I think he had a, a navy one, a white one, or no, gold one. It was certainly a gold one anyway. But yeah, he had a, a maroon and a navy version which you know even yeah. all club bias aside was the best looking one yeah um and then we also used that colorway for the coaches so i think we were one of the first brands to actually put the coaches in different colors than the, the team so i think the team were um maybe sky blue and royal or white and royal and then uh, the coaches were in maroon and white um and Bryony, who was the, the designer that was working with me on the product, she's a Burnley supporter. So oh, perfect. I didn't, didn't get any resistance there either when it was, <laughs> hey, what about this pantone? Should we drop this one in and see what happens? <laughs> That's superb. What, what other shirts have you, uh, are, are you responsible for designing? So in terms of directly designing stuff, that was mostly the, the Puma era. So yeah. from 2001 till 2007, most of the, the game day shirts that, that Puma put out would have um, either been just me or very heavily me and then yeah. working with, with Brian and Sam, the two of the designers back then. Um, when I moved across to, to work at Umbro, um, my role was a little bit different. So it was more directing a, a team of designers that were working on those products and um, and helping them to, to kind of come up with the best solutions. Uh, I didn't realise you were, you were at Umbro as well. Yeah, so I did. I did five years at Umbro from just after um, just after the, the famous twenty ten kit was was released, the, the plain white um, yeah. polo shirt on, yeah, and the away shirt. So from two thousand and eleven kits um, until I think the first round of Everton kits in two thousand and fourteen fifteen. Yeah. Maybe the following season as well. That was that was about when I left. So that would have been my kind of last few football kits. So towards the end there, because um, Umbro were under Nike ownership when I first went to work for them. So we had quite a big team and a lot of assets. 
Yeah. And then Nike sold the business in about 2013, I think, or the end of 2012. And then I stayed on at the the business, but we had fewer assets and a a smaller team. Um, So I started getting my hand back into designing a few shirts and and getting involved in a, a few things there. Shirts that sort of inspired you when you were growing up. Um, that you know that really kind of made you fall in love with football shirts. I think anything exotic, really, which sounds somewhat crass. But <laughs> like thinking back to say being eight, nine, ten years old in the, the late eighties, and then kind of early, very early nineties, you just didn't have the exposure to to players and teams and whatever else that you do now. You know, I can pretty much watch any game in any league in the world now if I want to, whereas yeah. back then you couldn't. I mean, even Villa playing away in Europe, I remember I'd be sitting in my room listening to it on the radio with my dad. Um, and, and so when you got the chance to see a, an Inter Milan shirt, you know, it, was, it was amazing to, to be able to yeah, definitely. Touch and feel and see one or when Inter came to Villa Park and they've got Bremer, Mateus and Clinton in the team. Just yeah. mind-blowing. You'd never get the chance to see those players. You'd read about them in the magazines. Yeah. But, so there was a lot of that and there was a, a big exhibition um, at the NEC. And I'm not entirely sure when it was, but it was a huge, huge football expo. It would have been around about probably 91 or 92. And I, I went there and was able to get an old... Uh, Ajax shirt and an old Milan shirt with the media lane and sponsor on the front of it. Yeah, and yeah, it just just blew me away because it felt so so precious to be able to to get your hands on something that had been worn by you know Marco van Basten or Rude Hulley and yeah, you'd never you'd just never be able to see them play real football apart from in the World Cup. Yeah, no, I totally understand. That. I mean, it was that era as well. Was English football was it had gone through what? at least five or six years of being in the doldrums really yeah. and um, football was not cool at all was it at that time and, no. and then you, you that that sort of time you had um, Italian football you could start to see bits on a Saturday and a Sunday um, perhaps it came a couple of years later but I totally get that uh, feeling of um, that kind of otherworldliness of some of these clubs that you just sort of heard of and you knew they were massive but you, you didn't know much about them really and the colours always seem to be so iconic as well didn't they Inter Milan you're talking about and Ajax as well yeah, such um, you know, such evocative colourways as well. That sounds yeah. Just well, no, but I, I think it, it is though because that was that was the whole thing about those about playing against those clubs or, or being able to see their shirts was you'd only you'd only ever really been exposed to the big moments. Yeah. So that was what it brings back for you. The same as I was talking to somebody the other day about stadiums and, and said that you know. It's, there's something that lives and breathes in the in the walls of a stadium. Yeah. That you know, you could build an exact replica of Villa Park somewhere else in the country for another team to play in. And it wouldn't have the atmosphere of Villa Park. Or yeah. at least not for, you know, maybe twenty, thirty years because it's just there. It's in the, the fabric of the shirts, it's in the, the bricks of the, the stand. 
Yeah, absolutely could not agree more. I absolutely love football stadiums. Um, what what um, uh, Villa actually? We should talk about Villa shirts as well because Villa have had some, I mean, unbelievable shirts over the years. I'm thinking, obviously, the Hummel, the Denmark template um, yeah. from late '80s um, to the the early '90s Umbro shirts with the drawstring collar, and I love that white. I don't know if it's the away kit or the third. I think it was the away kit, um, the first year of the Premier League, the white one um, yeah. with the. I think it's got a graphic on the arm. Yeah, that's just right. Fantastic shirts, and then the ASIC shirts that came after as well, in that in that kind of nineties early Premier League era as well, were really nice with the Muller yeah. sponsor and some fantastic Villa shirts. Yeah, Very absolutely. Cool. Well, that that Hummel one was my first ever football shirt. Oh wow, what a star. Um, yeah, which I've, I've I've not got it anymore. I don't know what I've done with it. Um, I had a route through the loft a few weeks ago, and it wasn't there. I remember drawing a number eight on the back of it with a marker pen. <laughs> Uh, presumably to honor David Platt. Right, okay. Um and so yeah, there was there was that one and then it just became a obviously an annual thing for me then that I'd I'd want the, the new shirts, albeit a lot of them at that time were were, were two year life cycles. So I think even that white one that you've referenced for the, the first season of the Premier League, I think we used that the season before. Yeah. I think um did. and so for me it was always a Christmas present. It was never a case of Yeah. Oh, there's a new football shirt out. Of course, we'll go and spend 35 quid on a new T-shirt for you. It was, you know, it was a big deal to get a football shirt. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I guess that made them even more precious to me. Yeah, we were I talking. Suppose. We were talking to Neil Hurd uh, for a podcast a month or so ago, um, and we were talking about how back in the kind of 80s and and 90s football, a club would have a shirt for two or three seasons, sometimes a bit longer actually. Um, and so when you look back on those shirts now, you know, they, they've got two or three seasons worth of memories that are attached to them, whereas now the clubs replace them every year. <clears throat> and how challenging that must be for designers, um, possibly, uh, in terms of trying to, you know, create something that's memorable um, for supporters. I think you, something you touched on earlier, really, wasn't it, about not wanting to stray too far away from the sort of traditions and design principles um, of a club but also wanting to do something a bit unique and something that perhaps hasn't been done before yeah I mean there definitely is I think it partly depends on how many kits per season the, the clubs are having yeah. I mean I, when I was working with Lazio they were having four shirts every 12 months oh, so they had domestic home and away and European home and away um, that's interesting because isn't it right that in Italy there's less uh, fans tend not to buy the replica shirts certainly the current replica oh, shirts oh yeah I mean w- yeah we were selling way more Lazio shirts in the UK than we were in Italy yeah um, and, but I mean that because they've got it structured as domestic and European then we were able to so the, I think there was one year their European home shirt was quite wide sky and white stripes so it wasn't oh, yeah. hugely different than the um than the domestic home shirt yeah so that was somewhat easier but when you started getting into clubs that had got relatively strict brand guidelines but wanted a few kits every 12 months that was when it would get really yeah. difficult yeah um yeah yeah so i was re- i was reading something on i think it was national football museum posted a picture of um the blue england kit I, don't know if was, I think it was the away kit or the third kit I can't remember from 1990 Italian 90 um, suggesting that that was sort of 
an important shirt because it it kind of started our our kind of collective love affair in this country with football shirts, um, which I thought was quite interesting. I'd not, I'd not heard that previously, mm-hmm. um, and obviously featured in uh, World in Motion video. Yeah, um, and I wonder if 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 you sort of thought saw that as the kind of the shirt that perhaps started to kind of spark this. Um, this connection that we have in this country with shirts, or if there was perhaps another shirt or era or set of shirts or something like that. What do you, what do you think was the, the, the shirt that kind of started all of this? Well, I think that, that whole set of shirts really that, yeah. that England wore, um, I think the timing of it was, was just right because, you know, going out to, to that world cup, just in, England fans were not welcome anywhere. And, no. Margaret Thatcher's approach. There's that great documentary about Italian IT. I forget what it's called, but that kind of compares and contrasts what was happening on the pitch with yeah. what was kind of the political stance on it all. Um, and I think it was starting to get into an era where replica shirts were more easily attainable. And so it wasn't kind of prior to that, it was more you'd, you'd just get a whole kit in a bag in kit sizes yeah yeah even you know thinking back to mexico 86 or the euros in 88 it was a lot more geared around kids would wear replicas um and so they became more attainable around about 1990 onwards mm. and it just helped that england had such an amazing emotional tour mm. i think if england had kind of got dumped out which could have easily happened if you think of the performance against yeah. Egypt or conceding two against Cameroon or yeah. whatever, then perhaps that wouldn't have been it. It might have needed something else. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. As it, uh, interestingly as well, that tournament was also featured one of the other, you know, iconic uh, shirts of, of uh, you know, contemporary football, which was the Germany shirt. Um, and, that same shirt had been worn at Euro eighty eight, I think, um, <clears throat> and that just it just plays it goes to the point we were talking about earlier about how certain shirts, um, you know, pre probably the last decade would be worn for either more than one season or more than one tournament, which seems incredible now, doesn't it, from a kind yeah. of commercial perspective? But that shirt, had it not been worn in nineteen ninety, I wonder if we would. I mean, I presumably we wouldn't really care about it now. Well, perhaps we would, but probably it would be less um, desirable perhaps or less popular than it is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, it's a symbolic shirt, isn't it? Exactly yeah. as you say, if they've got a different one, then whatever that had been might have been more yeah. Yeah. iconic. But I think that between that and the, the 1988 Holland shirt, and um, I think mostly the, the Adidas kits around that era, they were the, yeah. the first ones to really nail kind of the what the graphic trends were of a particular era because yeah. that just the way that that kind of German flag is is printed across the chest and the, the shape of it and everything it's just absolutely spot on for, for that era you look at it now it could only ever be a graphic from the early 90s yeah definitely what do you think the kind of a football shirts becoming cool as they have done I guess in the last five or six years because um, I kind of like it but there's part of me as well that feels quite protective i.e. I've loved football shirts forever and suddenly you know you see rappers and 
pop stars and other people wearing them and i kind of feel a little bit protective about it i wonder what you thought about that yeah a little bit both i mean i think it's it's certainly good for the brands and the, the clubs involved and it's a lot of that stuff isn't happening by accident you know i, I don't think drake is popping into sports direct when he's on tour to see what he can see what he can pick up to to be photographed in i think there's you know it's definitely instigated by brands largely in terms of well, how do we get the, the cut through to launch a new shirt when there's so much noise like right now yeah there's just new shirts new shirts new shirts every day and it's mm. well how do you do a launch that captures people's imagination or the, yeah. the umbro england launch on casabia at a gig in paris for an away shirt just absolutely incredible yeah um you know so i think there is there is a little bit of me thinking well it was nice when it was people wore them just to football matches, but then I don't know why not. You put so much time into designing it. Yeah. Why not have people enjoy it? I think I'm probably more bitter about the fact that I'm too old to get away with it now. <laughs> still, in my, still in my early twenties, I'd be quite happily <laughs> rocking around in some of this stuff. I saw some Boca Juniors shirts a couple of days ago. I was yeah. like, oh yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. But at the moment, I'm, I'm at the stage now where I see a nice shirt. And then the first thing I do is go and have a look to see if there's like a nice hoodie or something in the collection that goes with it that <laughs> I can perhaps get away with a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, and no, I know what you mean. Um, and you just sort of touched upon it then, but I was just going to ask you about the sort of more modern shirts because it does feel like designers have, um, you know, been a, been a bit more courageous now. There was a sort of period of uh, the shirts being quite, um, you know, sensible, I guess, and and subtle. Um, and now we're sort of seeing a return to that kind of '90s era of big graphics and bold color colorways, and uh, just a bit different. I'm I'm a big fan personally, but I wondered what your sort of take on it was. Well, I think again, now it's partly you've got to have you've got to be able to make the cut through. Yeah. Um, I think also it is about representing the club and the brand. So whatever a brand is standing for in a particular year, they, you know, where else would you rather showcase that than? You know, the most watched sport in the world. Um, and then I think as well, just understanding the core demographic of who's interacting with football shirts now and how they're interacting with them. And it's the same with club badges as well. You know, the club badges are, Juventus being a prime example, it's perfect yeah. for social media. Yeah. It's been shrunk down and mm. simplified so it works on social media and with the kits. You know, I've not done research on it, but I would certainly be willing to stake a rather large bet that probably more teenagers interact with football kits through playing FIFA than they do yeah. through watching or playing proper football. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, even we're at the point where it feels wrong not to call FIFA proper football because it's, <laughs> you know, it's a competitive sport. Um, so, I think there's an aspect of that of, well, how does it show up? And Adidas, again, were they launched a few different shirts, didn't they, through FIFA last year, through Ultimate Team. I think it was yeah. Real Madrid, yeah. United, maybe Bayern Munich, Juventus had very specific new shirts that were launched in-game. Yeah. Um, so, there's yeah, there's so many more aspects to think about it now rather than going back to when shirts would last two years, you'd launch a new shirt and people would buy it because it was the new shirt and it was going to last two years. Yeah. 
and that was it. Whereas now you're looking to try and pick up more of the, I guess, supporters or just football shirt lovers on the fringes. So, again, if I was in my early 20s, there'd be nothing to stop me from. I have no affinity to any particular Italian team. So if I was into football shirts, I might buy the Roma shirt and the Inter away shirt and you know, Napoli or whatever, yeah. just because. So that's, again, additional revenue for the brands and for the club. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of really quick questions. I'll let you go, Rob, because um, uh, I know you're hugely busy at the moment. Um, first of all, fantasy shirts. If you could design a shirt for any club, which club would it be? Simple question. It'd have to be a, a Villa shirt. Okay, you can't pick Villa. <laughs> oh, man. Um, in that case, I don't know. I could take two routes with this. One would be to to go with some incredibly iconic club that I've not had the chance to work on. So maybe like Milan or Boca yeah. or Ajax or you know, somebody massive. Yeah. But maybe doing it for a brand that's kind of less well-known or not around as much now. So yeah. doing a, a Puma Milan shirt wouldn't interest me as much as I'm doing one for somebody different yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Um, so there'd be that. The other alternative would be doing like a Birmingham or a West Brom shirt and doing something really spiteful with it. Yeah, well, um, that, was, that was going to be my second question, actually. It was, would you ever design Birmingham shirt? I mean, if I had to. I think I got lucky actually that when I arrived at, at Umbro, I think the, the Birmingham deal had just expired, yeah. so I didn't have to work on it. But there's a quite a good story about Alexander McQueen. Um, so before he was the famous Alexander McQueen, he worked at a tailor's in Savile Row, yeah, um, and, and learned his trade. And, and he famously talked about how um, part of his job was sewing in the liners into the, the suit jackets for the royal family. Yeah, and he, and he wasn't a royalist at all, so he used to write very rude messages <laughs> inside the jackets using Taylor's chalk. So he like, yeah, like just write profane things inside the, the liner and said that if Prince Charles was to cut open some of his jackets, <laughs> he would be greeted with horrible messages. Yeah, um, okay. Which I thought was awesome. Yeah, you know, that's the, that's absolutely the sort of bitter spitefulness that. I'm, well, yeah. yeah, I'm well up for that. So yeah, okay. that'd be quite nice to be able to just knit something into the material or yeah. something that's a bit wrong or yeah. a reference more to Villa than it is to Birmingham. Spe- spelling, spelled, spelled Birmingham wrong on the club badge or something like that. Yeah, I mean, even they did a they did a club diary a few years ago to sell through the club shop and inside the cover it had got Villa's club honours instead of Birmingham's, <laughs> which was amazing. So we've got European Cup winners. And, oh, that is yeah. superb. Um, so, yeah, I think it'd be nice to cleverly sneak in something yeah. like that. Why not? Exactly. Brilliant. Rob, thank you so much for your time. That was genuinely fascinating. Um, as That's I say, right. you have you, you did the job that I think every every person who's not able to be a professional footballer probably has dreamt of at some point or other. So um, it was really, really interesting to hear from you. Thank you ever so much for your time. Rob, really appreciate it. Cheers, Mike. No problem at all.